Now invite Tim forward to preach the word and lead us in the rest of our service. Good morning, everyone. It's been a while since I've been among you, uh, but it's good to be back. Uh, I feel like even though I think the last time I, I preached uh, here was back in April. Uh, I've not lost touch with what's going on at Third, just because of my ongoing relationship with Liberty Northeast and with the fact that Casey and I sit down uh, every couple of weeks um, in a mentoring relationship. Uh, and so it's uh, it's good to be back in the pulpit, but uh, at the same time, I feel like uh, I never left. Um, A lot's happened over the last few months, personally, uh, and I do just want to take a moment to thank everyone for praying for Susan as she's recovered from uh, her accident. She's with us today, so uh, feel free to say hi to her and uh, to wish her well. Um, The Lord has given her grace to make uh, a significant recovery. She's still working on some things, but um, I'm glad she's mobile and kind of kind of almost back to where she was. Uh, and we're praying that the Lord brings her the rest of the way. With all that said, uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to pages 857 and 858. Uh, and we will read the scripture today. I believe it'll also be up, or maybe it won't be up on the screen. I don't know. Uh, but this is Luke chapter 2, verses 21 uh, through 38. I think in the Bible, in the uh, bulletin rather, it says through verse 35, but we'll be reading through verse 38. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword, rather, will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts might be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is completely trustworthy and inerrant. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that as we read a, a historical event, read about a historical event this morning, uh, where there doesn't seem to be a whole lot happening, Lord, I, I pray that you would cause uh, your word to take root in our hearts. I, I pray, Lord, that you would give us insight into our own, uh, our own hearts and into your word in such a way that we are transformed by it. And so we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, and just a word that uh, I, I just found out from Jerry on Thursday that he wouldn't be here today. So uh, this is not a full-fledged 11-point uh, sermon as uh, you would normally get. Uh, it's more of a, a meditation. But So it is that time of the year, as you can tell by uh, the fact we're celebrating New Year's and by the fact the church is still decorated for Christmas. It's that time of the year when we still watch Christmas movies. And as Susan will tell you, uh, two of my favorite Christmas movies are musicals. Uh, they're actually Irving Berlin musicals, Holiday Inn uh, from 1942 and its sequel, White Christmas from 1954. And there's a funny thing about musicals. If, if you've ever seen a musical, whether it's in a play or, or in a movie, they're unique among other kinds of entertainment because the narrative is advanced through the characters breaking into songs, sometimes without any, any kind of warning or without any kind of purpose. And one of the things about the songs and the musicals is that they're not just extra pieces of, of uh, the script. The, the, the songs actually drive the narrative forward. You can't just take the songs out and have the movie make sense. The songs are necessary in order to amplify what you see and what you hear in the rest of the production. The, the story is not the same if you take them out. They are a part of the story. And so this quality of a musical is one of the unique features of the first two chapters of Luke, which you and Casey have been going through uh, for the last few weeks. You might remember back that there are actually a number of songs in these two chapters, six of them as I count them. Uh, first, Mary visits the pregnant Elizabeth, her cousin, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she bursts into song. And then in response, Mary bursts into song and her song is what is often known as the Magnificat. And then three months later, when Elizabeth's baby is born to Elizabeth and her husband, Zachariah, Zachariah bursts into a prophetic song about his own son and about God's plan of salvation. And six months after that, in Luke 2, the heavenly host burst into song, uh, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
And now in today's message, we see two final spontaneous expressions of joy. The song of Simeon, which is often called the Nunc Dimittis, and Anna's words of praise and prophecy to those in the temple with Jesus and his parents. And instead of Irving Berlin, uh, as in Holiday Inn and, and White Christmas, here the author and the producer of these songs is none other than the Holy Spirit himself. The Spirit himself is the one identified as filling the hearts and minds of Elizabeth and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna. And although he's not directly mentioned, we assume that the Spirit is also behind the songs of Mary and the heavenly host. So think for a minute about kind of this weird genre of song, uh, especially built into a, a narrative, built into a musical, when do the characters tend to sing? Well, it, it's when they feel certain kinds of emotion. It's, it's when they feel happy or when they feel sad or when they feel lonely or when they're feeling nostalgic or when they're looking for answers. We sing the same way. I mean, there are a lot of songs that would be characterized as happy songs and pretty much uh, all of the other categories I listed sad and lonely and nostalgic and looking for answers, that pretty much sums up country music. <laughs> but think, think even about the words of Psalm 84, the psalm that we read for uh, our responsive reading this morning. Let me reread for you the first few verses of that psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. And so this is a song of, of praise and thanksgiving. The, the psalmist just upon thinking about being in the Lord's house, is filled with joy and moved to, to song. Why? Because the Lord is there. Think, think about that. In, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the temple was constructed in such a way that you had all of these uh, outer courts that led to an inner court in which the presence of God was said to dwell. And so when you went to the, the temple even though you couldn't be in that inner court with the presence of God himself, you knew that God was there. You were just separated by a curtain, a wall. But the, the psalmist is filled with joy. He's happy, and he bursts into song. And something similar is what's going on here in Luke chapter 2 with Simeon and Anna. They're both filled with joy. They're not necessarily joyful at being in the house of the Lord, though they are both in the temple, but they're happy and joyful for two reasons. One is that they, are, they, they realize through the work of the Spirit that they are in the presence of the Lord in a way that no other human beings have been up to this point in history. That they are actually in the presence of the incarnate God, the Son of God and that they are seeing the will of the Lord fulfilled. And what is that will of the Lord? Well, we read in verse 25 that Simeon has been longing and waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
And we read in verse 38 that Anna, who devoted herself to worshiping and prayer with, uh, I'm sorry, with prayer and fasting for at least 60 years, she was also waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, as apparently many others to whom she prophesied that day were. Simeon and Anna are moved to song and exclamations of joy because they see the Christ, they hold the Christ, the one through whom God would bring salvation to his people. Come at last. Simeon and Anna had been waiting for this Savior for a long time, and so the joy that they feel at seeing the fulfillment of something that their heart's desire has been uh, for, for so many years is, is magnified. And think about that. Think about in your own life when you've hoped or desired for things for a long time. When when they're finally realized, isn't, isn't your sense of joy so much more profound than it would have been if you had received that thing right away? Think about yearning to be in relationship with someone. And finally, after years and years of, of seeking for the right person, you finally find the person to whom you're going to be married. You, you have joy at, at being united to them in marriage. Think about uh, seeing a child come to faith. For years and years and years, you, you, uh, profess, uh, uh, you proclaim rather faith to them. You teach them. You walk with them. You see them grow. You, you model Christ for them. And when they, when they profess Christ for themselves... You're filled with joy because you know that this is, this is something you've been waiting for, praying for, for a long time. Well, take that emotion and multiply it by many, many times. That's what Simeon and Anna were feeling. Their heart's desires had been fulfilled. But Israel, the, the people of God, the nation of, of the people of God, has been waiting even longer to see her salvation appear. Uh, From the perspective of Simeon and Anna, the nation of Israel has been waiting for over a thousand years to be redeemed. About a thousand years earlier, at the time of the death of King Solomon, King David's son, Israel, the, the nation of Israel, was at the pinnacle of its power. It was at the pinnacle of its political size. It was at the pinnacle of its wealth. It was a world power. But very quickly, over the course of the next few years, it began to decline. And it declined so rapidly and so profoundly that not only did it lose its military strength and its political strength and control over much of its territory, but it turned from its true king. It turned from God. And the people chose instead to worship idols. And as a result, they were carried off into exile. As a matter of fact, as you remember, the kingdom was split in two. And the northern kingdom of Israel was carried off into exile by Assyria in 722 B.C. And then right after that happened, the prophet Isaiah told Hezekiah, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, which was still intact, that his people would suffer the same fate. It was just a matter of time. And that's the the context, a prophecy of judgment, that the very next words come through the prophet Isaiah to God's people. 
And these are familiar words because we often look at them during the season of Advent when uh, we think about our own separation from God, our own uh, time in exile, and what it's going to take for the Lord to reunite us to himself. And, and just think about this as you hear me read these words from Isaiah chapter 40. Very, very familiar words. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Go up, on, uh, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What Isaiah proclaims to Hezekiah and to all of us today is the, the, the consolation of Israel that Simeon had been longing for. It's the redemption of Israel that Anna had been hoping for. It's being able to say, after centuries of suffering, finally there's comfort. After centuries of separation, of not being in the presence of God, finally, what does Isaiah say here? He says, behold your God. He's in your midst. And Simeon and Anna, through the power of the Holy Spirit, knew that they were not only being reconciled to their God, but they were actually able to hold their, the Son of God in their arms because he was a baby. They were able to see the beginning of the final chapter leading up to the point at which Isaiah's words come true. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. This is the, the climactic, the world-altering, the capital R redemption that everyone had been looking for. You know, one of my favorite Christmas traditions is to listen to the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols from King's College in Cambridge, England. Um, it's a service that has remained largely unchanged uh, for the last 104 years. The first year that this service was celebrated on Christmas Eve, um, it was celebrated as a kind of as a response to the end of World War I. Uh, and it was a way to try to find hope and meaning into the great loss that the people of England had suffered in that war. If you're not familiar with it, the service is just nine passages of scripture spanning the course of redemptive history, and they're interspersed with nine carols or, or choral arrangements. And the minister begins the words, I'm sorry, begins the service with these words, the same words that have been spoken for 104 years. He says, let us read and mark in Holy Scripture the tale of the loving purposes of God from the first days of our disobedience unto the glorious redemption brought to us by this holy child. 
And then the first lesson is always from Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebel against God. And that's the start of the tale, our rebellion. In order to understand what's happening at Christmas, we have to look all the way back to almost the beginning, certainly to the beginning of of sin in the lives of human beings. Because the redemption that we're looking for isn't just the, the, the ordinary problems and, and suffering that we experience every day. We need to be redeemed from something that is infinitely worse than those small trials and sufferings that we experience. We need to be redeemed from ourselves. We need to be redeemed from this sin nature that has not only taken hold of each of us, but is, is trying to remake us in its image. We need to be redeemed from the, this, this self-preoccupation and rebellion against God over which we have no control. The people of Israel had tried in their own strength to be good enough to serve God. And what God told them over and over again throughout the course of redemptive history is you don't have what it takes. There's no way that you can atone for your sin. There's no way that this breach between us can be healed. And that breach is is what Simeon and Anna had in their, their sights as they were waiting for the consolation and redemption of Israel. Finally, the healer of the breach is here. Finally, the one, the baby, who will grow into a man who will die on a cross for my sins and the sins of everyone else who trusts in him is here. How glad Simeon and Anna must have been and how glad we can be that the salvation they saw still in the future is something which we can now rest in because it's been completed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so just two observations as we wrap up. One is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, put Simeon and Anna in the temple on that day when Jesus was presented for many reasons. They proclaimed God's glory and his faithfulness to everyone around. Who knows if some of the first Christians weren't present in the temple that day to hear Simeon's or Anna's testimony. And then they encountered the adult Jesus teaching or preaching or healing or dying 30 years later. But I believe the Spirit also put Simeon and Anna in the temple on that day to proclaim God's promises to a very select audience, to to Mary and Joseph themselves, to encourage and prepare them for all that they would have to endure in the years to come. The testimonies of Simeon and Anna put all of the events leading up to Jesus' birth in context and gave these poor, young, humble, uneducated parents a sermon of sorts to help them understand all that they had heard from the angels and from others. The words of Simeon and Anna gave Mary and Joseph a context to endure the persecution that they would experience upon returning to Nazareth, the the judgment of those around them who would always gossip that at least Mary, if not Joseph as well, was guilty of promiscuity and fornication. 
After all, Mary and Joseph weren't married when Jesus was conceived. And perhaps some of the sympathy that Jesus had for the Samaritan woman at the well 30 uh, some odd years later came from seeing how his own mother was treated by others in their own small town of Nazareth. Mary was likely shunned by her neighbors as an immoral woman. The words of Simeon and Anna would provide a context through which Mary and Joseph would be able to endure their own hasty exile to Egypt within a few short months as King Herod would seek to kill the baby Jesus, afraid that uh, he would take Herod's throne. And lastly, Simeon's words in particular to Mary about how a sword would pierce her own heart also gave Mary a window into God's redemptive plan though probably only as she saw her son dying on a cross 33 years later would she know what it meant when Simeon told her that a sword would pierce her own heart. The Spirit put Simeon and Anna into the lives of Mary and Joseph in order to give them clarity and encouragement in a confusing time in their lives. And so, who has the Lord put into your own life to speak prophetic words of encouragement? Or perhaps they aren't words of encouragement, but but words of challenge or rebuke or warning. This is the ordinary way in which God builds up his people. He, He calls us to gather together on Sunday mornings and to listen to the preaching of the word, and that has its own unique purpose in in shaping us. But scripture tells us the primary way in which we're shaped into the people of God is as we submit ourselves to one another in the church as we speak words of encouragement, as as we speak words of rebuke, as we speak words of challenge into one another's lives. Paul uses the the language of uh, constructing something. He, He tells us that as we do this for one another, we're built up into the very body of Christ. The Lord sovereignly provided Simeon and Anna to help do that. For Mary and Joseph. Where are you looking for the Lord to provide people in your own life? That was the first observation. Here's the second. Simeon and Anna had themselves been waiting a long time to see God's promises fulfilled. Simeon says, I think with a deep sense of satisfaction in verse 29, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, your promise to me has been fulfilled. Simeon has been waiting because the Spirit made it clear to him that he would not die until he had seen the Savior. And Simeon had probably been waiting for some time. We're given to believe that he's an older man because it now seems like he's ready to embrace death. Anna has been waiting probably at least as long as Simeon. She's at least 84 years old, possibly older. She's been at the temple daily for what we assume is decades, prophesying about the coming redemption of Israel. It's a long time for both of them to wait for their hopes to be fulfilled in Christ. And so my question for you is, what are your hopes? What are you longing for, especially in this new year? What, what things have you been hoping for for days or months or years or decades? Perhaps it's to see some kind of suffering come to an end. 
for yourself or someone else. Maybe it's to see victory in your own life over some particular kind of sin or doubt or fear. Maybe it's for a loved one, a child or a grandchild or a spouse to come to faith or repentance. Paul Miller, a pastor in our presbytery, says that behind every young person who comes to faith somewhere is a grandmother who's been praying for for that person for years faithfully. I think it's probably not easy to pray faithfully for something that doesn't come quickly. Susan and I have seen that in our own lives. Uh, There has been suffering that we've endured for, for years. There's the suffering that we're going through with our own daughter right now. And many of you know about that suffering. Many of you have prayed for us and with us. Uh, And that suffering goes on. It's hard to remain engaged in prayer. It's hard to believe that God is going to act for years. Think about what we said earlier. Israel had been waiting for a thousand years for her redemption at this point. It's one of the reasons that Paul exhorts us in Colossians 4.2 to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Simeon and Anna were steadfast in their prayers over the years, and they were watchful in that they didn't give up when their prayers weren't immediately answered. But it's difficult to endure that kind of waiting, especially on your own. Like I said a moment ago, the Lord's given us one another in the church to bear one another's burdens, and sometimes those burdens take the form of heartache over unanswered prayer. And so my question to you is this. Where are you struggling to persist in prayer or to persist in faith itself? Where are you reaching out to your brothers and your sisters around you to help, uh, to find help rather, in in struggling well, to enduring those longings that don't seem to be fulfilled. Simeon and Anna endured their waiting with faith and watchfulness so that at the right time they would be able to rejoice and in turn to build up the faith of Mary and Joseph. And 2,000 years later, reading out how the Lord strengthened them uh, can strengthen our own faith as well. But let me offer this to you as well. Sometimes it's God's will that we would wait. As a matter of fact, that's his will most of the time in most circumstances. It's very infrequent that God gives us what we think we need when we want it. We are a people that are called to wait. We're people who are called to be the Simeons and the Annas of the 21st century. We're people who are called to believe that God's promises are true. That he does love us, that he is for us, that he is making all things new. That uh, even as um, Tolkien said in Lord of the Rings, uh, everything bad is being made untrue. Hope in the Lord as we begin this new year. And trust that he knows your heart, he knows what you need, and that he's faithful to provide. Let's pray. Father, 
We do thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you, Lord, that you never turn back on any of your promises to us. And yet, Lord, as we've just talked about, it is difficult sometimes to endure the waiting. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make us a people willing to wait, willing to be patient, willing to endure the hardship of suffering, of seeing longings unfulfilled. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to endure because we know that Christ is for us and that Christ endured all things in order that all of your promises would be yes and amen in him. Strengthen our faith, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.